Welcome to Pod Aloha, dedicated to preserving the heritage of surfing and the spirit of aloha. I'm Paul Strau, and I'm going to take you inside the stories of surfing's biggest influencers. And I'm Kieran McGuire. Today, we change up our format a bit as we turn the interview lens on our own host, Paul Strau. Tune in as he shares stories about the Duke, lessons he absorbed from his own mentors, and how he developed the maneuvers that he became so known for, including, of course, the Strau or Cheater 5. Enjoy. Hey, aloha, Paul. Aloha to you, Kiernan. Good to see you. Great to be here and great to be with you. I know. It's really cool. We're finally sitting down and talking to you about surfing. For those of you who don't know who Paul Strau is or don't know all about Paul Strau and just know him as a really good guy and local Sano surfer and style master, he's been called one of the best surfers in the world. Jerry Lopez says he looked up to you and wished he could someday surf as well as you when he was growing up. Um, you won the Makaha International in 1969, and maybe most significantly, you were part of the Duke Kanemoko surf team and traveled the world helping to really spread the sport of surfing all over. So you are a, a living legend. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you could see Paul's face, you would see his eyes going down. One of the things that um, Matt Warshaw, I think, wrote about you in the Encyclopedia of Surfing. He said, you have a reputation for always wanting to avoid the spotlight and never really wanting to take credit for things like inventing the Cheater 5, for example. Um, so what was that like, Paul? Just it, there's a, There was a moment there where you're on the Duke Hanamoko team. You're 22 years old. You're one of the most famous surfers on the planet. Um, how did that feel to you? That's an interesting question. You know, obviously, I certainly have great respect for Duke. Always have. Seeing him when I was a young boy, walking with my dad along Waikiki Beach. I was fortunate enough to have a father that surfed. I had a, had a history of surfing in Waikiki, having lived just two blocks uh, from Kuhio Beach. And um, Waikiki is a very special back lot if you know what I mean by that term, but people who spend time in Waikiki don't just go to Waikiki and walk along the sidewalk. They, they, they do that as well as go into the ocean. And each area of Waikiki has a very special aloha spirit, um, knowing that those, those waters were graced by many, many people for a very, very long time who fished and and uh, spent most of their lives right in that bay. So Moanalua Bay is a very, very special area, not just related to surfing, but it has great prominence for the people of Hawaii, uh, those that were indigenous and those that came later as visitors and and found their way to make that their new home. So it, it has a very special place in my heart, and our, and I have deep reverence for all that it stands for, especially for with my background. Why don't we talk a little bit about how you first started surfing? Sure. It was, you know, I had an undeveloped lung when I was young, and so my both my mom and dad felt it would be healthy for me to get down to the ocean to breathe the salt air and have the sunshine help me and grow and uh, and uh, increase my appetite and the exercise would be good for for my health and so uh, you know i was down on the beach early and gradually you know 
got on my dad's redwood board and got pushed into waves. And I'll never forget that first experience. It was totally sensory. Just lying on on the board while the board carried me on the wave, really right all the way up on the beach, you know, in Waikiki. The waves are very gentle, and, and uh, so it wasn't any, in any danger. But I'll never forget the, the visual experience of seeing, you know, objects underneath the water, uh, seaweed and coral, and then flashes of brilliant color from the fish that would be swinging back and forth trying to get away from the board that was riding on that wave. And that whole thing was just like, uh, it was just magical. And I'll never forget that. And gradually graduating slowly uh, and learning etiquette and learning patience and, and then learning how to stand and balance yourself on a board and being small and having a much bigger board than would suit me at the time, trying to learn how to maneuver it, get it to change directions and then and not fall off because if you fall off, the board would continue to go on the wave. And so you end up spending most of your time just chasing the board down and you don't want it to get damaged. So all those dynamics become a part of the whole experience. But I think once you kind of get some control on, of what you're doing and that you're able to change the direction of the board slowly, you start working and improving on all of those aspects of uh, control. And, and, and that really starts you on the way to uh, a higher level of enjoyment. So most people probably don't know this. Most people probably think you're uh, uh, a regular footer, but in fact, you're naturally goofy. You were telling me this while I was trying to work on my uh, recovering from my broken ankle. And you said, oh, oh just just switch foot and surf regular because I'm goofy. And <laughs> and I said, yes, but that's actually pretty hard. And you said, oh, no, it's not. And then you told me about your own your own reasons for for uh, surfing switch foot, which you finally just adopted. Right. I mean, I'm left handed. And so, you know, that's the dominant uh, side of my body my you know would kick a football with my left foot and i would dribble with my left hand so th that would be that's my strong foot so you know in surfing your strong foot is always your trailing foot because you lean back more than you lean forward so your all your balance is controlled by your back foot uh and turning etc but uh in waikiki i found that most of the waves the better waves that broke on those reefs were the ones that broke from left to right. So you would ride towards the right of the wave rather than the left. And so, you know, I always had my back to the wave. And as soon as it broke, you'd have to come down quickly, straighten out, and then slowly, you know, go back to try and get an angle to go right. Otherwise, back, the wave would hit you in the back and then you'd lose control and you'd have to swim. So, uh, you know, quickly, you don't want to swim all the time. You want to ride the wave to the end and then, so that's what you'd have to do. You'd have to turn down and then gradually work your, if you were a goofy foot, which I was. So I said, watching everybody else surf with their left foot forward, obviously they were uh, right-handed and right-footed. So I changed my, put my left foot in front of the other one and gradually learned to just wait and unweight, wait and unweight from your back to the foot, to your forward foot with uh, my left foot forward and it gradually became easier and easier and then to turn. And so I, for a while I was ambidextrous and when I'd go right, I'd have my left foot forward and when I'd turn to go left, I'd have my right foot forward. 
So it would alternate like that. And then after a while, I just thought, why am I doing this? It's crazy. So I just ended up permanently surfing with my left foot forward. Oh, there you go. Adapting to your environment. So you had a, a very special relationship with Duke. He was 53 when you were born, right? So That's clearly correct. a big age group. But you obviously got to spend a lot of time with him as part of the Duke team. Could you uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about how the Duke team came to be? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Kimo McVeigh, who was a, a musician, a, a singer, and a local uh, guy who kind of grew up in Hawaii, um, and was, was sponsored by his mother and went into show business. And Kimo actually founded a restaurant called Duke Hanamoku's. He thought it was his brainstorm to have a Duke celebrated as a as a Hawaiian hero that he was, not only for his Olympic accomplishments in swimming, but also as a renowned surfer, uh, really the godfather of surfing as far as I'm concerned, because he really put surfing on the map. And I had the distinct pleasure of being a part of the Duke Kanemoku Surf Club named after him. And together with uh, Fred Hemmings, uh, Butch Van Arstalen, um, we we uh, you know were part of that group that uh, were actively involved with Duke and, and Joey Cabell too. And Joey team, Cabell right? too. Yeah. Joey was very busy with his uh, restaurant that he had started, the Chart House, and so but he was very active with the Duke Hanamoku Surf Club, mm-hmm. and so we all had a fond affection for for Duke, and I had a special one too because I was introduced to him by my dad when I was very young and then got to know him later on when I was like 20 years old when the Duke Hanamoku Surf Club was formed and the Duke Hanamoku Restaurant was formed by Kimo McVeigh. So we all kind of came together and there's a quite an age difference, you know, between us, but I, I can't emphasize how special and generous a, a person Duke was with his time, energy, and uh, just graciousness, you know. It was such a a true hero of uh, Hawaiiana. Yeah, and you guys traveled, I mean, really all over the world, right? Well, Spread- basically we went from, you know, Hawaii and then we, he, he was, we were in, Kimo got in, us involved in uh, representing Hawaii to celebrate Aloha Week. Aloha Week was formed right after summer in September because there was a big tourist drop-off. Uh, everybody came to Hawaii for the summer and everything was bustling. All the hotel rooms were filled and a lot of laughter in Waikiki and, and, and you know, everywhere on the islands. But as soon as uh, Labor Day hit and after Labor Day, everybody went back to work and back to school. So Aloha Week was a brainstorm of the government to continue the summer fair and bring everybody and allow them to stay on and have others come in especially the Europeans, but um, it allowed for the beaches to continue to, you know, be filled with visitors and the Beach Boys to continue their lifestyle, sharing Hawaii Mm -hmm. with uh, all of the new tourists that would come. And actually, uh, as a result of meeting the Beach Boys and surfing in in Waikiki and riding canoes, uh, they would uh, bring their families back over and over and over again. (laughs) It's crazy. 
so going back to Duke, I know that uh, from past conversations, you told me that you had a, a special role when you were out doing functions and dinners and things with Duke. Well, Duke was a special guy in, in many, many ways. And he loved all of us, uh, those of us, the, the four of us that were on the team. But Fred Hemmings and I were um, able to travel uh, a lot with Duke. And so Duke called me on the side once and he says, Paul, I'd like you to sit either on my left or my right because, you know, we're, we're, we're going to invariably go out and have dinner with a lot of these guests that, you know, we would be entertained by and, and also meet when we're traveling and, and in Hawaii. So I'd like you to sit close to me so that you could help me uh, when they ask me questions, you can help guide my, me uh, and uh, let me answer them properly. And so I said, of course, Duke, no problem. So the reason for this is that Duke was a very smart man. And at dinner, you know, everybody would be conversing back and forth. And Duke would wear his, uh, he had these dark glasses that were like Stevie Wonder glasses. So you can't see their, his eyes when you put them on and you wear them at night. You know, and and I knew why he was wearing them because people why? would ask him, and he says, "Oh, I just like them. I just I just have such a fondness for wearing them that I don't want to take them off." But Duke was an amazing man because he could fall asleep uh, standing <laughs> up. He could fall asleep uh, sitting down at a at a restaurant with a lot of guests around. In fact, he used to do uh, hard hat diving, cleaning the the piers in Honolulu Harbor when he was younger. And so he put on a hard hat suit with with air going into it, and he would take big scrapers and, and scrape the pilings in Honolulu Harbor and free them from all of the barnacles that would be growing on them. And one of the things that Duke was known for was that they, they found that he would, he found it so soothing to be down there after working for maybe a couple minutes that he would take his arms and wrap it around the pilings and interlock his hands together. And he would just gently flow back and forth against the piling and with the movement of the water uh, and uh, fall asleep. <laughs> so, so what they did was to counteract and not let that happen, they tied a rope around him and told him that we want to make sure if any anything happens that we could pull you up and save you. And so he went along with it, but it was really designed to wake him up when they saw the bubbles coming up in one space, one place for more than a couple minutes. <laughs> and they were dragging him to the next piling. So, <laughs> so anyway, he shared all of these things with me. And so I was, uh, I replaced the rope actually because Duke would fall asleep at these dinner meetings that we'd have. Uh, entertaining and my job was to sit close enough so that I could when someone asked him a question I could bang him uh, bang my knee up against his and get his attention and I would repeat the question and so that he could then respond with an answer <laughs> so we had this little thing going and it was really great it worked well <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious that's I mean it's so interesting Paul because for guys like me right I mean Duke just sits over all of surfing and just he like as you said he's the godfather of surfing and you knew him as a person right not just i mean to me he's almost he's like a myth right um i know from past conversations that you told me what a mark he left on you mm -hmm. as a as a person and the way he conducted himself and um i wondered if you could 
you know, talk a little bit about that, you know, what, as a person, what mark did, did Duke leave on you? Oh, you know, a very, he was a very, very special person, but, you know, he was the epitome of aloha, and the word aloha is common to Hawaii. I mean, that's where it comes from. It's, it's a combination, you know, if you broke the word down, it's aloe and ha, and it, it, literally translated from Hawaiian into English means in the presence of life. And so uh, ha is the word for breath, but it really speaks to the, your your whole persona that goes back ancestrally to all of the elders that came before you and connects you with everyone. So um, in the presence of life uh, was celebrated between Hawaiians when they would greet each other and they would embrace each other by coming up, grabbing their shoulders together and then placing their forehead on, on the person that they're greeting. And so you're really eye to eye and you're bending forwards to get your foreheads connected. And then expelling your breath or ha, it was done as an exchange of aloha. And that's the true way people greeted each other. Hawaiians greeted each other uh, way back when. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I know, I mean, you've been called the ambassador of Aloha, among other things. So when when you are out in the water, when you're surfing, what does Aloha mean to you in the water? Well, you know, you can't answer that unless I, I, I give you a little back information, mm -hmm. you know, to that question or circumstance when you're in the water and you're surfing particularly. You know, surfing takes place where the waves break, which are usually caused by a reef. And so everyone congregates on the reef waiting for the waves to come or a set of waves to come. And they're like impulses sent in from storms that generate uh, swells, which turn into waves when they get close to shore and break over uh, the shallower depths as the water rushes in in this, in this process. And so... Um, if anyone has surfed, they know what happens because you go to where all the people are because they're not waiting, you know, just to have conversation. They're waiting for waves to come. Right. So if you wait and watch some a group of surfers sitting together, you'll see that these waves will come periodically uh, from wind swells. It'll, it'll, and it'll go through, and they usually come in sets of three or more waves. And so uh, what they're waiting for are are the bigger waves because they offer a, you to ride a lot longer on the waves and and um, and give you the, the greatest thrill. The whole objective in surfing is is to stay in the steepest part of the wave and ride it to its fullest to the end. And so when you do that, uh, I, I can't imagine. It's very difficult to describe the the feeling, but I can just tell you that it was really hard going to school and knowing that those waves are breaking while I'm sitting in, at, at my <laughs> desk to, to continue to go back to school. <laughs> and so truancy was a real issue for me, but I, I, I really didn't uh, cut school much when I, when I was going to uh, grade school and high school. But because my, my, my parents gave me you know, a lot of uh, free time, to, you know, as long as I get my grades up. Right. But surfing is uh, more than just riding a wave. It's being connected to the ocean and all that lives below it and the people that live on top of it, which are other surfers. And so it's a community. And um, you see things, you know, I, I've been, I was 
very observant and watching uh, the dynamics that goes on below the water and above the water, uh, knowing you know what makes waves form and the reefs, and knowing that you know especially in Hawaii there there are certain uh, sea urchins that live in in the reefs, and that could uh, really cause you a lot of pain and suffering if you stepped on them. Uh, their spikes will break off, uh, and uh, you know it's very difficult to get them them out of your skin. But the same thing goes on, on along the top of the water. I mean, seeing people, uh, if you come up to a group, you'll see people look over at you. They'll size you up because everybody out there has an objective, and that's to uh, catch the bigger waves. And so with that in mind, knowing everyone there has that purpose in, in mind, that you have to also join them and you have to make it not so obvious. Otherwise, you're going to be watched and scrutinized more than others, you know. So it's a really human dynamic situation that, you know, ultimately you want to make sure that you don't abuse that uh, privilege with in the group and, and find a... a common harm, harmony and working with each other and, and giving them ways and, and they'll return the favor. And that's that's the secret, I think, to having a long uh, surfing experience. You know, if you can understand that and it, 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 it's, it's tough to learn, you know, but you have, especially when you're younger, but you it, it's a good thing to learn earlier than not so that you can benefit by all of the positive ramifications that come with it. So, Paul, uh, you've told me that one of the one of the big impressions that that Duke left upon you was what it really meant to live with Aloha. What does that What does that mean to you when you say that? Um, I guess the the easiest way to describe Aloha and the Aloha spirit is a person who has a, a very open nature and welcomes you into their world and their closeness, and and it's very comforting when someone talks to you like that with a genuine interest. And so that's that's all part of that Aloha spirit or connecting on that level where you feel this person is really engaging, but it's a soft engagement. It's a friendly engagement. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a significant difference and you feel welcomed when you're in their presence. Yeah, and for those of us who never had the honor of being around Duke, I mean, what was it that, I mean, you've, you've, you've talked to me about this so many times. What was it that he exuded that, that how, how did he impart that to you? Because he obviously made such an impression on you and so many other people. I've just never had the chance to ask anybody else about that because nobody else knows Duke the way that you do, that I know. Well, it's a good question because everybody that had that opportunity to know him personally would speak to that same um, significant um, part of his uh, demeanor, you know, which is he felt, you, you felt welcoming when you're in his presence. He always had a twinkle in his eye. So he was he's focused on you. He looked straight at you when you were engaged in a conversation. And he always responded openly. You know, he never had any uh, self-purpose. Uh, you know, he was always ingratiating and welcoming and kind. And those are all words that define who he was and his personality. And so it makes him uh, to be a very special person. And I know you've come into contact with people like that, that there is no guile, there is no pretense, they don't have a barrier, they're not better. 
you know it's just a, it's just a welcomed approach and that's that's that was duke right oh it's you too Okay, so um, quote recognition time. I want to see if you can recognize who said this. He was the best surfer in the world. It was like Star Trek, like something out of the future. I have, I don't know who said that. Really, I don't. The initials are BK. Well, well, yes, I do know those those initials very well. Barry Kanayo Puni, and he was a special Waikiki boy. I got to know in the early days in Waikiki. Uh, we all Waikiki has a well. Wait a minute, Nessie, you're going off. Do you know who he's talking about? No, he's talking me. about you. Oh, so here's something else that's going to be embarrassing. Is this is one of the best things I've read about you, and and, and is very true in in the way that I know you. Um, so surf heroes weren't as easy to come by back then as they are now, but Paul was certainly ours. And this is Jerry Lopez writing, by the way. And it wasn't just his surfing. Paul was an elegant and graceful person. When other surfers were affecting a grubby fashion statement, Paul wore button-down collar shirts tucked in smartly to perfectly pressed slacks and polished shoes. No one had more influence on my generation of surfers in Hawaii than he did. The funny thing was, he never sought publicity, nor did he get much from the limited surf media of the time. So you obviously had a huge impact uh, as both a surfer and a person. On, on a generation of, of surfers. Is there something in particular that you like people to associate with your approach to surfing and life? Oh boy, that's a good, very good question. Um, I, I think, I would hope that they would appreciate others just like they would want to be appreciated because it makes it, it, makes it so special. And if you can eliminate any um, self-interest um, I know everybody grows and you grow in different times and different dimensions too. So, but it's hard to exist when you're only thinking about yourself. And so as soon as you change and transfer that attention to the people that you're around, uh, believe me, it's recognized and it's so much more pleasant to be around someone who's uh, calm and collected and interested in you, right. you know, and all of a sudden your whole demeanor changes. And so, I think that's a real statement for the world at large to to uh, come into grips with and try to understand that, you know, it, it's just a natural way to be. And everyone spends so much time trying to protect themselves, you know, from being taken advantage of. And I think you lose your perspective about um, others. So you've got a, a star on the Surfing Walk of Fame in the Huntington Beach. And you're credited by by those guys in the write-up for that uh, with creating two moves in the late 50s that would influence so many people and are still used today. Um, obviously, the Cheater 5, or the Strau 5, mm. which you're so well-known for, and maybe people know this a little bit less, but also uh, you're credited with really doing the first functional bottom turn in bigger waves as well. I mean, that's something that probably a lot of modern surfers can't even believe there was a time where that was invented, right? Because it's obviously the core part of surfing today. Well, what came to light when I started riding, you know, when the waves got bigger, I mean, if you you drive all the way to the country and, you know, the, you know, because there were no surf reports or anything, you knew what it was like by the size of the, the white water line when you're coming down the hill from Wahiawa and coming into Haleiwa and you look out there and if you saw a, a a big thick white water line 
you know, between the shore and your vision, you know, uh, you knew that the waves were big. And then that's when your heart started beating. One way we used to try to find out how the waves were, you know, on your way out to the country is there's a flat section coming into the pineapple fields until you start to descend through Wahiwa and go down the hill towards Haleiwa. And where it's flat and you can't see the, the little bit of the horizon, but you can't really see the inside section and, and see if there's white water or not. Uh, you used to stick out your, your hand. If you're driving, you'd stick out your left hand and you'd, you'd put your thumb up and you'd put it in the upward direction or in the downward direction. You'd go up or down and then you try to get a, a reference from people driving up whether they had a surfboard in their car or not, to give you an indication of what the waves were like so you can get hyped up, you know. But as soon as you went over the top of the hill and you could see the white water, and if it was pretty wide, then you knew you were in for a, a big day. <laughs> and so if you go all the way out there, sooner or later, either, you know, you see it up there or it could grow while you're out surfing on the North Shore in height. And then all of a sudden you have to deal with it. So sooner or later it's going to come up and you're going to be out there. And so one of the things I observed real quickly is that a lot of people would paddle for the wave like you would a small wave, stand up and immediately start to turn in the direction that you wanted to go in. And so turning at the top meant you're actually stalling. And so you're, you're actually suspending yourself and you're totally at the mercy of the wave because you're going to lose forward motion until the wave and gravity take over and then you're going to just fall um, down to the bottom of the wave and then it's going to break on you and then you have to swim all the way in to get your board. So, you know, after you go through that one experience, you say, I'm not going to do this again. So it becomes necessary, obvious, to catch the wave a little earlier, use the, 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 the curve of the wave as a slope that you could generate more speed on. So you try to back up so that the nose of your board wouldn't pearl dive and so you back up on your board as you descend. And then what I tried to do is inch up a little bit and get more compressed on the board so that you don't lose any speed. And so you're maximizing the speed just like a, a skier would do when he's coming down and jumping, you know, in the snow. And then shuffle the board out when you're down almost at the bottom and then put all of your weight on the inside rail and, and, and put one foot back so you transfer it to the rail and back. And then the board would come right around and then you'd have to recenter yourself weight-wise on the center of the board and then move up so that the, the speed of, the, of your board would actually increase. It wouldn't slow down. It would actually get faster. And then you could adjust and with all that speed, then you would try to time the way you would come across the wave so that you'd be in the curl the whole time. And it, it could, you could drag a hand or you could turn back down to go a little further and stall that way. But it was all designed to allow you to maximize the curl of the wave and get tighter in the bigger wave. I, I think that's it's it's always interesting talking to you about how some of these moves the developed. Right. And you're you're always credited with having such style. But whenever you know I talk to you about moves like this, you say, oh, it's just functional. Right. I mean, right. Well, it For is. you, it always was. You just made it look stylish probably because of <laughs> because of your elegance and grace and how you did it. But it's just interesting to me that the that you were problem solving. Right. It sounds like you were oh. trying to solve the problem of 
not trying to do that turn at the top of the lip and doing it at the bottom and then and then getting into a cheater five was giving you the ability to actually a cheater five was a, a, a stalling technique right because as you got up in the front of the board you'd actually start pushing water and so if you calculated it right it would kind of suspend you in that section of the wave and then you'd have to adjust your back foot so that you could push push yourself back so that you keep the speed mm. constant and it worked very well for that purpose so i wonder if this this was about you experimenting with the bottom turn but in the article that i quoted earlier that that jerry had written he talks about i'm going to just read another excerpt it was a serious day at sunset breaking at about 10 to 12 feet Strau paddled for a wave, caught it, and just kept paddling all the way down to the very bottom of the wave. Then, nearly at the trough, he popped up into a soul-arching bottom turn that slingshot him right back up to the top just as the wave was starting to stand up. Mm-hmm. So what were you thinking paddling all the way down the face of the wave like that? Were you, was this part of your development of, the, of your bottom turn, just trying to get more speed? Pretty much, I'm sure. I mean, right. it was trying to keep the, the, your speed, you know, my speed, on the board constantly increasing right and so i thought if i you know it got more steep and and you, you continued paddling that would be more release the board would at least continue to release and and your speed would increase rather than decrease and did that work <laughs> did it make a difference paddling all the way down the face like that to a degree but there wasn't much time on the bottom this <laughs> you know to do up. too much <laughs> <laughs> who are the people that you looked up to you talked about duke earlier who were some other folks out in the lineup that you really looked up to who helped you learn the, the you know the lay of the land well you know first first off i have to pay homage to the waikiki beach boys because they were earning a living they were the ones who had the most experience uh, and when you're young you look up to those that are there all the time and you and they would stand out in the crowd because they had more grace they had more agility you know, they looked uh, stoic uh, and they look like they're really having the most fun out there. So you try to emulate them. I think everybody, you know, when they first paddle out on a board, it's so awkward. It's so you're not used to this, you know, the, the paddling, the, the positioning, the sitting up and then, you know, having the, the nose of the board sticking up in the air and, and you know, just getting comfortable. It's it's awkward. And so you know, I found it's easier to look at other people and, and try to emulate or do exactly what they're doing and look casual and relaxed uh, than go through that pain and suffering like a lot of people, other people do. But um, the were, Beach Boys were, were the yeah, biggest were there, influence. Were there, some, were there some Beach Boys in particular that you would single out that had a special impact on you? Sure. There are some guys that are long gone, of, of course, now, but there was a guy, a Filipino man named Dingo, and he, he was a Waikiki surfer, uh, incredible uh, physique, um, very quiet, never spoke much. Found out later that he was a very high-ranking master in martial arts, and maybe that's why he, he was so um, quiet and kept to himself, but he, he was uh, an incredible uh, gymnastic surfer you know how he could rotate his body and twist and turn and always look relaxed and elegant you know he would arch his back and do things that really made him stand out from the crowd there was another guy uh squirrely carvalho who was 
Um, I don't know why his name, his nickname Squirrely, but he, he surfed better than a squirrel would. I mean, <laughs> uh, he was an incredible rider, um, always in the curl and be able to change directions effortlessly. And so these guys really stood out. A couple others, Dickie Boy Abbey at Queens, um, he was a nose rider, and he would just be very few movements, you know, very casual, would take off, uh, stall the board, go back to the left, let the wave start to build up in front of him, turn real casual, and just quietly walk step by step all the way to the front end of the nose and put, you know, both feet hang straight off the front end of the board and ride it very nonchalant and relaxed. And then as the wave started backing off a little bit, very gracefully slide, step by step all the way back and then just make the sweeping cutback to redirect the board. And then it would be, you know, carbon copy every time he did that. But he had it down by rote. And I said, I used to marvel at that and sit, count his steps and, put, you know, how many it took to before to back up and stall and then do it. And I tried to do that. And, you know, it was painful for me to learn that. But that's, I think, what everyone does eventually. You try to pick somebody out of the crowd who looks, he's like your hero, and he's so graceful or whatever his motions are, you wish that you could surf like him. And so if I had to make a recommendation to anybody surfing, no matter what skill level you're at, find someone who embodies the persona that, and the grace that you'd like to become and emulate, and then watch what they do. And then if you have a chance, watch what they do outside of the water. Because you know, I found that, you know, what becomes second nature to you or natural, uh, you don't just do it at certain times. You have a lifestyle. And what you, if you see them calm, cool, collected, relaxed, poignant about, you know, how they speak or how they hold their, hold their hands and gesture and everything and, and, and a grace about them, you know, and you and you watch them doing their athletic endeavor. You know, it translates that way. So there's there's a, there's a connectivity in in how people live, and uh, move. You know, and dancers do this too, um, but surfers do this too. You know, and I think it's a a point well taken to to use this to help um, engineer. You know, your own enjoyment, and and so. Having a role model in any on any endeavor uh, shortens the road to success. George Downing was a huge influence on you, and uh, I know it was a really sad day for you when he left us recently. Mm-hmm. He was like a, a surrogate father, but more like a um, an older brother that I never had, and. Uh, I always looked up to him for what he stood for and how he conducted his life and, and how he was always reaching out to help others. That was the first thing, you know, that um, drew me to him. Uh, in Waikiki, he, he spent his life on Waikiki Beach and, you know, assisting tourists and others to learn about the ocean. He's very patient, um, taking them out in canoes and also surfing. And so I had the good fortune of knowing him through the Waikiki Surf Club. My, my dad was a, a, a member, and so I became one. We participated in all the activities, uh, paddle canoes, uh, 
in different age groups I did and uh, and surf with a lot of the guys there and and so I, I became because George was a, um, a coach and also a highly regarded paddler both uh, surfboard paddler and canoe paddler and steersman and I learned a lot about the ocean from him uh, from a distance and then gradually became close to him and and we would take trips uh, together he, he was older than I was, but he became a, a real role model for me to follow and, and I learned from. And so there were so many techniques about, you know, surfing small ways, big ways, and, and how to protect yourself and, and how to make life easier, you know, in, in the water. And um, What are some examples of those things? To use a current, you know. We were sitting in, uh, at Lani Akea, and the waves were 25 to 30 feet. And we stopped there because Laniakea on the North Shore, where you look straight out at the break, there's nothing that grows right there blocking your view. It's an open portal to, you know, the break. And so we're sitting there and it was 25 to 30 feet. And we're watching it and just looking and marveling at the size of the waves coming in. And nobody was out there, you know. And so after watching it and saying, oh boy, so obviously... You know, if we continue to go towards Waimea Bay and then down to Sunset, I mean, it's going to be giant there too. So I guess there's not much surfing today. And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we're not going to go surfing today, right? And he goes, no, of course we are. We're going to go out here. And I go, you can't get out. There's no way that you could paddle through this. And he says, let me teach you something. You see all this water coming in, the waves breaking, and all this movement towards the shoreline? And you see how it almost looks like it's high tide? I go, yeah. He says, it's not high tide. It's, low, it's medium tide, more low tide than it is high. Nature, you know, is telling you something. If you watch the flow of the water, all this water is coming out. It's not going over the road. Our cars aren't being lifted up and pushed it back into the brush, right? It's going back out. I said, Where? He says, you have to look closely. Look right straight in front of us. I said, yeah, it's all a reef. It's pretty shallow in there, I know. It's like maybe three feet, and it's like three to five feet deep, and you can go out maybe not quite 100 yards, but 75 yards, and it's still by, at your waist, you know, and, and then it gets deeper after that. And he says, I know, and that's where it's going out. There's several areas that it's going out. It can't all go out through that one channel down there. So there's too much water coming in. So he says, when you, why don't we get ready and we go out? And I said, oh, I really don't want to go. And he says, no, you're going to learn something. So I said, okay. So take our boards off the car, wax up. He says, just follow me. So we, we walk straight across the street. If we're right in the center of the open space area fronting Laniakea, and we walk down this little embankment. I said, where do you want to go? He says, let's go in right here. So I said, okay, I hope we can get out. He says, we'll get out. You won't even have to paddle. And I go, paddle out against all this water coming in? He says, yeah. Watch me. Just follow me. So we push off the, for the beach and take about four or five strokes. And he was, God, if he wasn't right. The, the, the board actually started moving on its own, and we're in this undertow current flowing out. So it was very shallow, and I was thinking that my skeg, my fin is going to run up on the, the reef, and I didn't want to damage it. So I got off. When I got off, I mean, the water was literally pulling straight out. So 
as, and as we went out, all the water coming in, and it, the, the water going out pushed us down a little bit because the force of the water coming in sideways. So we, we just found our natural, we took about maybe 12 strokes, and then we're out on the reef just inside of the, where the waves were breaking, and it carried us out a little further, and then we pushed us out into the main channel, which is going out like a freight train. And so inside of no time, we were out there probably less than five minutes. And I was totally amazed. So that was one big lesson that I learned from George, you know, how, how to use, be observant, look at all the conditions, look at the way the wind's blowing, the, the direction of the swell, how many count the waves in each set, and which one is the biggest wave in the, in the sequence of the waves coming in, you know, because generally that, that tells you something, they're going to be, nature does that, you know, and, and so the more information you get, it's just like reading a blueprint, you know, Okay, this is going to give you a roadmap to utilize all this, the physical circumstances to your advantage. And yeah, he was a, a real um, wise person in the ocean, very wise. So how did this session work out? Were you happy that you made it out? <laughs> Great. It was, the waves were huge, but they were perfect. The wind was right, very light winds and glassy. And once we got outside, it would break way out there, maybe 25 feet, and roll in, and then it would back off. There was a channel deeper area, and it would reform. And so we ended up surfing where it reformed, and it would take us all the way through. So once you get out there, as long as you didn't lose your board, you could make it out to the pull out and then make it back out the channel that way. But what a learning experience. I'll never forget that. That's an amazing story. Anything else that that feel like you want to call out about things you learned from George in the water? Yeah, just to be patient and be observant, you know, and then keep your eye on the other guys in the water too because they may need your help. And so it's a buddy system that really works and it's very important. It's not all about you. It's about uh, surfing in harmony with not only nature but everyone else that you are surfing with. And, and you know, there's a saying, uh, my mom taught me this, Holo meka lokahi makekai, which means uh, always flow in harmony with the ocean and the sea. Well, that does it for this episode of Padaloha. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next episode. We'll be joined by Mr. Skip Fry. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>